Good afternoon from Jerusalem. Good evening, good morning to you wherever you are around the world. Um, it's a hot summer day here in Jerusalem as we are appreciating the beauty the Lord's given us and busy working and preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles. But today our seminar has a different topic. It's not the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to be giving you some Bible teaching about the church and Jesus as Messiah and his role in the return of the Jews to the nation of Israel, which is the Hebrew word Aliyah. After we have that teaching, then we'll go to Nicole and a special guest, a friend of the embassy, Danielle Moore from the Jewish agency with whom we coordinate all of our Aliyah projects. Um, Nicole, great to see you, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Barry. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to a great time as well. Excellent. Um, I believe that when uh, I finish this study, we'll show you a short video of some of the new immigrants that just recently arrived and we were able to greet. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to suggest you open to the book of Isaiah. And the topic of our study today is the role of Jesus, Messiah, in the restoration of Israel and what that means to us as his body, the church. And it's interesting because the prophet Isaiah is the prophet that speaks the most about the Messiah. It's the prophet quoted most in the Gospels. Jesus himself quotes from Isaiah 53, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Um, and well, excuse me, the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53. And he quotes that the spirit of the Lord is upon me from Isaiah chapter 61. So we as Christians recognize that the prophet Isaiah had an understanding and a vision of the Messiah and what he would do. First, let's open to Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. The church commonly understands these verses as revealing to us something about the Messiah. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Now, that resonates with me because I, I remember Jesus saying in the book of John, I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it first. I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it first. But now let's jump down to verse 10. It continues talking about this root of Jesse. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the peoples. Now, the word banner, some translations call it a standard. Some call it a flag. Um, and those are all appropriate translations. When you see that phrase, a banner to the peoples or a banner to the nations, 
and the Hebrew word behind nations is the Gentiles, it's talking about Jesus. This Messiah, who will come from the root of Jesse, shall be a banner or a standard. Um, a standard is something that a, a, a unit in the army would march behind their standard as they went to war. For the Gentiles shall seek him. So there it, you see it's talking about the Gentile church. And his resting place shall be glorious. So that was kind of short and sweet, but you might say that's the first point of this three-point message. That Isaiah saw the Messiah over the church. Now, the second point is that Isaiah saw the church and the Great Commission. So now let's move to the end of the book, to Isaiah chapter 66. And we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Give you a moment to open your Bibles there or slide through your phone, whatever you have to do. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 and 19. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations. The Hebrew words, the Gentiles. That's the non-Jewish peoples around the world. And all tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. That to me speaks of the church. Those of us who've come to know Jesus, we've been brought out of all of the tongues and all of the nations to see and understand the glory of God. Then he continues in verse 19. I will set a sign or a banner. It's that same Hebrew word, lenes, a flag, a standard over them. That's Jesus being set over these Gentiles whom God has brought near to show his glory. And those among them who escape, I will send to the nations. And he names some of the nations, Tarshish, Pool, Lud, those who draw the bow and Tubal and Javin, and to the coastlands afar off. To those who have not heard my fame, nor seen my glory, and they shall deplore, declare my glory among the Gentiles. Here, Isaiah sees the church, these Gentiles, you and me, called from the nations under the banner of Jesus, and we've been brought near to experience and see some of the glory of God, and we've been sent to the ends of the earth to declare his glory among all of the Gentiles, among all of the nations. Again, this is a real short, simple study. That's point number two of three points. Now, the third point is actually the, the topic that we're going to be talking about today. The role of Jesus as Messiah in the return of the Jews to Israel and the role of the church along with him. And the prophet Isaiah saw all of this. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. And let's return to verse 10, but this time we're going to read verse 10, 11, and 12. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as this banner or this sign over the nations, the peoples. The Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall raise his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. 
from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the seas. He will set up a banner for the Gentiles, that's Jesus, over his church. And he will assemble the outcast of Israel. And he will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, normally when we as, as the church have historically looked at the description of Jesus as Messiah here in Isaiah chapter 11, we read about him being the root of Jesse. We read about him being a banner for the Gentiles, and then we, we stop. But it's knit together. The prophet Isaiah saw that the Lord was raising his hand in an oath that he would recover his people. And at the same time as he raises Jesus over the church, he will assemble the outcast of Israel. So my suggestion for you is that as believers, as followers of Jesus, we need to pray and ask him, what part do you want me to play in this restoration? Why is you restoring the Jews to Israel part and parcel with you being Lord over the Gentiles, over the, the, the nations of the world? Now let's jump ahead to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 22. And we're going to read one more verse there. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the Gentiles. Now that's interesting. The previous verse said, I will lift my hand a second time. But now he says, as an oath to the Gentiles, I will set my banner, Jesus, the Messiah, for the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. So here the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to the Jewish people, saying there'll be a time when God will raise his hand in an oath to the nations, to the Gentiles around the world. And he will raise up his Messiah as the banner or the standard for these people. And these people will carry the Jews' sons and daughters back to Israel. There we see the knitting together of this purpose of the Messiah restoring the people and how he is going to use you and I, his followers, the, the hands and feet of Jesus around the world. Now, before we go to our last couple of verses, I want us to talk a little bit about temple worship at the time of Jesus, or even earlier at the time of Isaiah the prophet. The temple was a very holy domain. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a brief story that. Uh, share some of the, the lack of understanding of this in the church. I was talking with some of our staff today when I was pastoring in Brazil. We were having a meeting, and we're, we're, as the pastors were there helping get everything set up, and the musicians had been there that were going to lead worship. They just finished their rehearsals, and we asked them, 
come help us set up the chairs, come help us sweep, come help us do this. And they said, several of them said, I can't do that. I'm a Levite. I said, okay, let's stop right now and let's have a discussion about what the Levites did in the temple. A few of the Levites blew the trumpets. A few of the Levites played the harps. A few of the Levites sang. All of the rest of the Levites cleaned up the blood, managed the sacrifices, took care, did the repairs. They, they were the administrators responsible, the caretakers, the custodians for everything in the temple. They didn't make the sacrifices. That was only for the priests who had to be descendants of Aaron. Now, even if I was a Jew, I couldn't just go into the temple and start doing something. You had to be of these tribes, of these families. Even more complicated, as a non-Jew, as a Gentile, I couldn't go into the temple, make a sacrifice whenever I wanted to during the, the, the certain holidays. There are apparently a couple of exceptions at unique times in the year where special Gentiles may have been allowed in. But in general, it was prohibited. We couldn't go there. So if you think about that fact that we Gentiles could not make offerings in the temple, this next verse in Isaiah chapter 66 actually is revolutionary. Now we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 66 and start with verse 18. We've read verse 18 and 19 where the prophets saw the church, saw the Great Commission. But we're going to read it again as we then go into 20. For I know their works and their thoughts, and it shall be that I will gather from all of the nations, from all of the Gentiles, and all of the tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, the church. I will raise a banner, a standard over them, Jesus and I'm going to summarize this next verse. And I will send them to the nations, to those who have not heard my fame, nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. That's the church in our great commission. Those who haven't seen him, don't know him, we are supposed to reveal him to them. Now verse 20. Then they, these Gentiles under the banner, shall bring your brethren like an offering to the Lord from the nations. However they bring them on horses and chariots and litters, mules on camels. You know, I can imagine if the prophet were saying this today, he'd said, look, these Gentiles are going to bring you back to Israel in cars and planes and ships and jets and boats, you know. What's important here is the prophet is just trying to say any means of transport. But when they bring them back to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, it is like an offering. Just like the children of Ismail brought an offering in a holy vessel into the house of the Lord, the temple. Now think about that. Even in the time of Isaiah. God spoke through a prophet and said, okay, the temple's closed to the Gentiles. 
But when I restore Israel, there will be something that they can do that I will receive just like a holy offering in the temple brought by the Israelites. Here, God is in a big way underlining this task of helping the Jews return to Israel. It's not just a humanitarian project. It's not just something that we're doing good to people who happen to be in difficult situations. Some of them are in very difficult situations. But beyond that, it is something that resonates with the heart of our creator, that resonates with his heart and his plan for the nation of Israel. So much so that he says that when we Gentiles do this, it arises to him like a fragrant offering that the priest would offer in the temple. That to me is, is almost earth shattering in my conceptions of God and the temple and the priest and everything. It's God underlining that this is something precious to him. And it's a part of why my heart resonates with this. Nicole's the, does we we love being a part of what God's doing to help the Jewish people return to Israel. And now for closing verses, I'm going to back up just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 66, and we're going to start reading at verse 10. This doesn't speak directly to Aliyah to the return, but it talks about Jerusalem and Israel and comfort. And it again reveals the heart of God for what ICEJ is doing today. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. She's had times of tragedy, and it's been times of grief. Today, Jerusalem's a flourishing, vital city. And every day, it's about a 30-minute work for me to leave my home, to go to our, our offices for the Christian embassy. It's about a 30-minute walk. I walk through the streets, and I just rejoice. It's like, God, this is a miracle. You have done this. Out of the ashes of 2,000 years, you are restoring Jerusalem. Now, verse 11, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her, to Jerusalem, like a river. Probably many of you pray regularly for the peace of Jerusalem, as the Lord told us to in the book of Psalms. Well, God says he's going to answer that prayer. He's going to extend peace. And in these last three years, we've seen this breakout of peace with the Abrahamic Accords, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, and Sudan, and Morocco. All of a sudden, Islamic nations that have refused to acknowledge Israel ever since 1948, a full-fledged diplomatic relations, setting up embassy creating free trade treaties between their governments. God is extending to Jerusalem this peace like a river. Next line. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. That's you and I. That's the church. 
That's the, the church flowing up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the church flowing in obedience to our Lord Jesus to help with the restoration of Israel. Then you shall feed. On her sides you shall be carried. You shall be bounced on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be revealed to his servants and his judgment to his enemies. That to me just captures where we are today in history. God's restored Jerusalem. He's telling even the Gentiles to flow up like a river, rejoice. He's giving peace. Um, and it's a part of what we have the privilege of doing to help the Jews return to their biblical homeland. So as a preacher, I could talk for another two hours on this topic, but I've got my wonderful colleague and uh, friend here at the Christian Embassy, Nicole, who's our vice president of the Aid and Aliyah. Nicole, what does Aliyah mean to you? Maybe you have some comments on these Bible verses before we go into the details of what's happening. Thank you for sharing those, uh, that beautiful message, Barry. Um, when I think of Aliyah, I'm always reminded that it is a sanctification of God's name, as Ezekiel uh, tells us in uh, chapter 36, and that it is a sign to the nations that he is the Lord. And so when we look at what God is doing here, it should be a sign to us of the faithfulness of the God of Israel. And... We can trust this God because this is a God who's involved in history, who keeps his covenants, that he's faithful. And we have the privilege of partnering with him in, uh, in the work that he's doing in the world, really. And, and so that is a, such a beautiful, amazing, and inspiring thing to me, uh, and such a privilege, actually. And so I'm always reminded of that. Of course, when I think of Aliyah, I don't always think, I don't only think of their arrival. I also think of the side of them coming and being established here in the land of Israel. And you and I both have the privilege of sitting here in Jerusalem and meeting many of these immigrants and, and seeing the vibrant life of this nation. And it's a truly amazing, amazing miracle. And it's very exciting to be a part of it. Amen. It is an amazing privilege that our creator has given to us to collaborate, to partner with him in his divine plan and purpose, restoring Israel as a light to the nations. I'd like to introduce our guest, Danielle Moore, who's joined us. Thank you for coming and being with us today, Danielle. Thank you. <laughs> she is a dear friend and colleague uh, from the Jewish Agency. And we have the opportunity to uh, cooperate and coordinate um, aid that comes in from the generosity of our donors around the world uh, in very practical ways. And I thought, Danielle, as we're starting out here, maybe people would just like to have an overview of the Aliyah scene right now. Of course, this year, after two years of there being 
not a small number of immigrants like we might have expected during Corona. We still kept a pretty good pace, more than 20,000 each year for the last uh, two years, even 26,000 last year or something. This year, in the first six months, I think we're around 35,000 immigrants. You might have an even more updated number since I'm one month behind. I haven't yet gotten the July numbers. But maybe you can uh, just share a little bit with our friends here. What are you seeing from your seat in the Jewish agency? You guys are in charge of the Aliyah efforts for the state of Israel. Um, what are you seeing from, uh, from where you are? Where's the, where's, uh, the, where are the numbers going right now? So thank you so much, uh, Nicole. And it's really a pleasure to be here with uh, dear friends from ICJ. It was uh, great also listening to your uh, Bible study, Barry. Thank you for sharing that. And really thank you to all your friends and supporters from all around the world that perhaps they never visited Israel and perhaps they never actually met with an Israeli, with a person who made this amazing journey of Aliyah and starting a new life in Israel. But it's really through the work of ICJ that they are present and that they are reaching out and that they are doing their part and helping to fulfill these prophecies really in our time. What a privilege to be able to be in that position. And I think that also you and I, Nicole, we feel that we are very privileged to be in the positions that we are and to be able to, to serve. Uh, and really, I know that the, the sacrifices and the and the decisions that you have made throughout your life as you're serving at ICJ um, are just nothing short of exemplary. So truly, thank you to you. And what we see happening in the area of Aliyah uh, over the past few months, we don't have yet the July statistics. We only get those out in August. But what we see happening is quite, um, quite extraordinary. And you mentioned correctly, really up until COVID, there was an upward trend in Aliyah of Jewish people coming home to Israel from all over the world, really over the past decade, I would say. And it gradually went up until when we finally reached in 2019, we were already at over 30,000 Olim that arrived in Israel that year. COVID came, uh, struck everything uh, into complete uh, astonishment uh, around the world. And what it did not stop really for hardly a day, there were just very few days in which it stopped, was Aliyah. Aliyah went on while the world was shut down and offices were closed and schools were closed and people couldn't come to work and transportation, the streets just stood still. There was still a constant stream of planes coming into Israel and bringing our people home. So if you want to kind of test and see, okay, what is constant and what can we rely on? And you spoke about God being faithful. I think that is also one way of, uh, of realizing it really just face to face. And what we've seen happening really in 2022 is something that no one expected and that no one ever, ever wished for. And that is really the war, the war that's taking place right now as we speak, really since February 24th, without any stop, without any pause, without any ceasefire, the horrible war in Ukraine that has caused about 12 million of the Ukrainian citizens to become refugees mostly refugees in their own uh, country, and uh, in some cases, really refugees that fled the borders of Ukraine. And that has created a complete spiral, tidal wave effect. You know, sometimes you say things make a ripple effect. This is not a ripple effect. This is just a tsunami of effect. 
that has happened in all the Russian-speaking countries in the region, primarily with Russia. And what this has meant that really just between February 24th until I would say the last week of July, there have been nearly 33,000 Olim that have come alone from Ukraine and from Russia. About another nearly thousand that came from Belarus, which in many ways, you know, for all intents and purposes, not only is it now a complete dictatorship, but it's actually also a um, occupied country, you might say. And so we're looking at numbers of really about 34,000 that arrived in just a period of about five months from those three countries. From other countries in the world, we're seeing typical numbers as we would um, expect. And the main main countries continue to be parts of uh, Europe, like uh, France. The recent election was a kind of a tipping point Uh, right now. That, that sort of reality in the country is uh, more or less uh, stable. But we see still Aliyah growth that's coming also from Latin America, from South Africa. United States last year was a record number uh, since the early 1970s, really, I think, since the time that my mother came uh, to Israel. <laughs> and, and really, every Ole. Every Jewish person that makes this brave move and comes home to Israel, every person like that is a blessing. But we never want to see people fleeing to Israel. We don't want to see people running for their lives to Israel. You know, in so many ways, that's one of the reasons why Israel was created, right? It was created to be that place of refuge for the Jewish people. And we always say never again. What does never again mean? It means that never again will there be a Jewish person at risk, persecuted, and that the doors of the world will be closed to them. The doors of Israel, the gates of Israel will always be open. And it's friends uh, like ICJ that help us in keeping those doors open wherever you are located in the world. And of course, here in uh, Jerusalem. But at the same time, we never want to see people coming in this way. And you related to the subject of integration. You know, when somebody makes Aliyah, it's not just about getting on a plane and, you know, landing at Ben Gurion Airport and kind of saying, you know, here I am. It's really about planning and thinking. You know, maybe you didn't do a lot of that when you came here, Nicole, but you didn't think that you'd stay here that long, did you? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So basically people plan and we help people plan for months, sometimes even for for years. You know, people have so many considerations. Where are they going to live? What work are they going to be engaged in? How are they going to secure the future of their children? There's so many considerations that need to be made. And here we have people, and it was just heartbreaking to see, and we're still seeing this, people that came to Israel as complete refugees, people that just a few days or a few weeks before We're just average middle-class people with steady jobs, a steady life, living in a country that was getting closer and closer to the European Union. And here they are running for their lives. Buildings, homes are just crashing down around them. And literally, they're just picking up whatever belongings they can. And within 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, they realize that they are running for their lives. And then they're landing in Israel. And who are they? Who are the people that are actually landing in Israel? It's for the most part, women and children. And, you know, women and children, it's not even children in the same, in the sense that it's all their children. Can you imagine being a mother that has a husband who's under the age of 60? So your husband can't come. 
maybe even you're very young and your father and your brothers are under the age of 60, they can't come. And then you have children and maybe you have a son who's 19 and a daughter who's 15. What are you going to do? Are you going to come with your daughter? Are you going to send your daughter on her own? Are you going to leave your son behind, leave your husband, your father, your brother? And these are the choices that these very brave women have had to make. And when a person like that arrives in Israel, when a brave, courageous woman arrives in Israel like that, how does she even go about to start her life when her heart is back with her, with her son, with her husband, with her father? So this is a tremendous, tremendous challenge. And I believe that you've visited in a number of programs of the Jewish Agency where ICJ has extended support and where really you came face to face also with this reality. And we know that this challenge will be with us for the months to come. And I would say that this is the kind of challenge that we have not seen for years and years. Yeah, there's been many surprises, haven't there, Danielle? Like um, people coming who, you know, we just spoke to one, uh, one immigrant that we had the privilege of assisting. So once, once they land, you have a month or so in a government-assisted uh, uh, kind of landing apartment or place that you can stay, and then there's probably some government funding um, towards rental assistance or whatnot. But if you're coming as a single mom with small children and you need to fund your lives, you're worried about, like you pointed out, with people from behind and from you know who didn't come with you, you're not able to work perhaps because. Um, you maybe don't know what to do with your children. Um, the funding that the government gives isn't enough necessarily perhaps to cover all the expenses that you have. And uh, we just spoke with one uh, immigrant mother who actually was forced to come without her daughter as well because she, uh, the daughter was staying with her uh, father's family when the war broke out. They were going to the north of the country. She was separated from them. She was supposed to be on a flight coming to Israel didn't know if her daughter was okay. Um, there were all these concerns. And when she finally ended up having to come without her daughter, uh, after landing in the country, she was hit by a uh, by, um, electric bicycle and had both of her legs broken. And so here she is, you know, dependent upon the goodwill of people around her to even bring her a glass of water and food, never mind all the other pressing concerns. And I was so impressed with this woman when we visited her last week. And I know that you know who I'm talking about and have met her as well. Lovely, lovely lady. Um, she had already found a job within days in the country. And then after only three days on the job, this happened. And she's, um, you know, in, the, in a situation where she can't do much. And so that's just one story out of the thousands that, that you're dealing with. And um, I think one of the surprises has been or uh, that actually there are more Russians who are coming than actually Ukrainians. And maybe you can speak a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's true. So uh, first of all, the kind of, uh, you know, when I met uh, uh, Lara for the first time and I immediately felt that she needed help and I immediately knew who to call. And I think I called <laughs> you uh, very soon after meeting her and asked if you would consider giving her some special support. So really, thank you for, for doing that. I know that she touched your heart the way that she touched mine. 
And, you know, if you think about, first of all, the reality of, uh, of uh, Jewish communities in Ukraine and Russia. So in Russia, there's more than double the Jewish community than that of Ukraine. In Ukraine, it's considered there are about 200,000 Jews. And in Russia, it's about 500,000 Jews. So it's a much larger community. Also, if you think about the reality of life in Ukraine, the general population, I would say that mostly since 2016, 17, has been living in an atmosphere of hope has been living in an atmosphere of a country that is proud and a country that is uh, moving ahead. Those that have been living in Russia, it's somewhat of a different story because for years already, the government in Russia, the, um, the, com the whole communication systems in Russia, the journalism, the TV, the everything, I mean, I think that, you know, even before the war, it's enough to hear about an opposition leader that uh, there's an attempt at poisoning him you kind of get the idea of what kind of regime is happening in Russia and therefore what is also the atmosphere in which the people are living. Some people can be very loyal and feel that they are part of a country that is dominant and that can stand up to the West and that is intent on bringing back the glory days of you know, forget about uh, the recent SARS, bring back the glory days of great Peter, of Catherine the Great. And there are others that look at reality and feel that this is not a country that they are necessarily proud to live in. And with the outbreak of the war, you know, some people, because of a war, they feel fear. Other people, because of a war, they feel shame. And that can be a very harsh feeling. And when you feel fear, it's very clear what you can do, right? You're afraid, so you run or you stand up and fight. When you're feeling shame, one of the clear actions in this case was to leave it behind and to find a place where you can feel proud. And that is what happened in many cases with, uh, with the recent Aliyah from Russia. And so when we're talking about um, over 32,000 that made Aliyah from Russia and Ukraine in these recent months since the outbreak of the war, we're speaking about really, it's it's almost uh, 19,000, over 18,000 that made Aliyah from Russia. Mm -hmm. And this, for years now, Russia has been leading the charts as far as Aliyah, but this is already just in a five months, it's already almost three times as much as it was in all of 2021. Mm -hmm. So it's a tremendous growth. And we know that there are thousands and thousands of more requests for, for making Aliyah from Russia. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, there's been unique challenges just with flights and uh, various things due to the sanctions, due to, uh, you know, just the overall situation of the war and people are coming in various routes. So we tried to keep those routes open as much as possible. Um, we've received a lot of questions, and I know that this is not something that we can really say much about, but there, there's been a lot of reports in the papers about just a review of the Russian government for these activities of the Jewish agency. Is there anything that, even in general way, you could uh, say to our listeners about what they're hearing in the papers? So the Jewish agency is committed since its inception over 90 years ago, back in 1929, is committed to and gathering our people and opening Aliyah. From 1929 to 1948, this was, for the most part, 
extremely difficult under heavy regulation by the mandate over the land and really with the most horrible tragic consequences as a result of that policy when the gates and doors of Israel, the shores of Israel were closed uh, 1937, 1938, 1939, and were actually closed even after the Holocaust. It was only in 1948 that the gates opened wide. And we have been working since that time with really bringing Olim from over 90 countries around the world. Like Barry mentioned, I think in his opening, there are countries in the world that there are really no more Jews living in them. These are largely Muslim Arab countries where Jews were living for centuries, really even uh, before the destruction of, uh, of the Second Temple, where they were living thriving huge Jewish communities that lived there for centuries and really no more. And we can discuss at another point, what does that mean uh, with regards to Israel and uh, different claims that are made against Israel. Yeah. But the reality with, uh, with Jews from Russia is that we have been deeply working in Russia very legally uh, since uh, the early 1990s, really with a focus of, on the one hand, reaching our people who for over 70 years were disconnected from much of Jewish life in the Jewish world because of communism, to reach out, to offer a way for them to find their path back into Jewish life, heritage, connection to Israel. And on the other hand, to offer them the key, the gate to, to Aliyah. And we've been operating with that fine balance for really since the 1990s, engaging each year with tens of thousands of young participants and summer camps and uh, different uh, youth organizations and uh, Sunday schools, really such a wide array of rich, beautiful activity. And when the war started, on the one hand, so many countries in the world said, you know, the sanctions aren't enough. But to us, the sanctions were a real threat because we realized that the sanctions meant that all of a sudden, it's not that the gates of Israel are closed, is that there is almost a risk that the Iron Curtain will fall once more. And so we had to very quickly find a way in which we could still operate despite the sanctions. And we did. We were the only Western country that was flying in planes on direct flights from Russia each and every week from the first day of the war and until now. And in addition to that, we had to find new paths and new ways in the wilderness and to bring out people in all kinds of other roundabout routes, what people are prepared to do for uh, Aliyah. You know, sometimes people today, when they go on a vacation or they want to go and visit a relative, they think, you know, about how many layovers, how many stops, uh, you know, uh, how much jet lag am I going to run into? These people are doing anything. The, the routes that we're taking people on are just uh, crazy but they're doing it because they know that they're coming home. And what is, what is happening now is that there is a legal process that is taking place in Russia. And the implications of this legal process are felt all across the Jewish world and in Israel. It's not a matter between the Jewish agency and the court system in Moscow. It's a matter between Israel and the Jewish people to Russia in a way. And we see our role and we see our responsibility very clearly as does the state of Israel. And we are continuing with our work at this time and we are committed to continue in our work. Mm -hmm. 
And we are committed to continuing to support you in that um, amazing mission. Um, as we've mentioned, uh, we also showed a video that uh, we're also continuing to see the Ethiopian Aliyah coming and we're expecting, uh, Lord willing, 3,000. We hope it'll make them all, all of them will make it into this year. I think it's somewhere in the 900 range that have arrived already. Um, it's uh, 964. Okay, you've got the exact number, 964 and more flights arriving at intervals in the coming weeks. But I would like to, and that's going to be a continued need as well, in, in addition to all the, uh, the, the other things that we've been pointing out. Um, and I think um, speaking with other uh, Russian immigrants, so whether they came many years ago or more recently, the ones who are coming now could well be that they're just the ones who um, are acting the, the quickest. But there is um, a very real uh, possibility that as the situation may be uh, changes in Russia that many, many more will come later um, who maybe weren't, you know, first responders, if you will, in a way to, to the, the crisis that's happening there. But I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, when people land here, uh, there's, we've, we've mentioned or alluded to the real challenges because Aliyah is not just the arrival, as we've already said, it's also a very complex process where you need to find employment and a new community and you've got to learn a whole new language. Uh, many people um, many people are um, not able to work in the same profession that is uh, that they worked in up until this point. Or, uh, so there's need for vocational training. There's need for, especially in the Ethiopian community, there's a need for um, uh, closing gaps in education. So there's even a platform to begin to find uh, suitable employment here. We were just this week together at the graduation ceremony of a group of uh, 22 or 23 uh, Ethiopian immigrants who had arrived here without uh, high school uh, completed, they had eight to 11 years of education. And together we were able to offer them a nine month program, ICJ sponsored and with you organized it with uh, the Ministry of Education and whatnot so that they could uh, complete that uh, course, that education, uh, the high school uh, matriculation within nine months. But there's many such things. Um, so, this is also a side that's just really, really, really important because we don't want to see people come here and end up on social welfare. Uh, we don't want to see them come here and end up in debt or in real difficulty and then be, you know, maybe um, feel so discouraged that they might say, what did I do this for? Maybe I should go back where I came from. And there are some that, that do do that, hopefully not too many. Um, but Danielle, the, the things that you focus on, that we focus on together for integration, maybe we could just share a little bit with our friends around the world, just how critical that support is as well. Yes, so it's, uh, it's, it's critical and it's critical not just for them after they arrive. It's also critical in many ways before they arrive because as mm -hmm. they're planning their Aliyah, I'm not mm -hmm. speaking now about those that are escaping the war in Ukraine, but as they're planning their Aliyah, they are already thinking about their next steps. So when they know that there is some sort of um, assurance 
or um, our likelihood of assistance given and finding professional opportunities or higher education opportunities in Israel, that is a huge encouragement and the even decision to make Aliyah. Not many people know, but a person who makes Aliyah can study in Israeli public universities virtually for free. People that were born in Israel can't study in public universities for free. But if you are a young person making Aliyah, you can get your bachelor's degree for free at an Israeli university. So that's just one way in which the state of Israel encourages Olim and supports them in that sense. But most people don't come to be students in Israel. Most people come when they are either post-college or that they have families, children. And the real worries is how do you put bread on the table and the worry about what kind of you know role model and family you can have when you build your life in Israel. So the kinds of solutions that are offered by the Jewish agency really vary between population, age, background, and what we're currently engaged in are very exciting developments because on the one hand, we are working, how can we assist the Olim from Russia and from Ukraine that had really no preparation time, that had to leave so many of their assets behind that are likely not even gonna be able to ever access those uh, assets. How do we help them go into different modes of professional training and education? And the second challenge is really the matter of the Olim from Ethiopia. Because the Olim from Ethiopia, I think anyone that just hears the term will say, okay, Ethiopia is a developing country and people are coming from rural parts. Uh, Israel is a Western modern country. We have a challenge here, right? It's not so uh, difficult to, to consider that. So if I'll address the matter of the Olim from uh, Ukraine and from Russia, we realize that because of the magnitude, the scope of the Aliyah, because of the fact that many people are coming here with families are split, we have to be very creative and offer different kinds of professional training that will take place within the community that will be based on participating in um, flexible hours and also on a flexible timetable as far as how many days a week. Because typically when we do professional training, and you know this, Nicole, it's very intensive. It's, you know, yes. at least five or six days a week and it's studying for eight hours and homework and assignments. And it's based on the idea that you're participating from the sheltered environment of an Aliyah center. You're living at the center. So many of your needs are taken care of. So focus on your studies. But this isn't the case with this mass Aliyah from uh, Ukraine and Russia. So we have to be able to meet the Olim where they are and to offer these uh, creative paths, creative uh, courses, and really a range of uh, professions. And this is something that we'll be more and more offering in the months to come. We have already started, especially through programs that you visited, for example, First Home in the Homeland, which takes place in the Kibbutzim. And of course, in the area of uh, higher education, we have opened programs specifically for teenagers and for lone young adults, those kids, those children that their families made that toughest of choices and sent their children alone. They remained behind in Russia and in Ukraine and they sent their children alone. Children as young as 13 and 14 years old came alone to Israel. And so we are caring for them in all areas of life, including of course, education. And then the second really uh, group is the Olim from Ethiopia. So what we have seen, especially over the past two years, is that whereas in the past, those that came from Ethiopia and were over the age of 18, about 20% were literate. I mean, that's an astonishing figure. Just 20% of adults over the age of 18 from Ethiopia had even the basic literacy skills of reading and writing in their native language. 
Today, we see that some 60%, not only are they literate, but that they have at least four or five years of education. And that is a world of difference. Because if you're talking about a person who is 20 or 30 or even 40 years old, that as compared to the past that had no education, no formal education, and now a person might be 35 and they have 10 years of formal education from Ethiopia, that is a complete game changer. And if you're talking about people that are younger, people that are in their early 20s and they are motivated and they're prepared to work, the sky is virtually the limit. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have begun to operate courses in a wide, wide range of opportunities. And the course that you mentioned really, what a breakthrough. I mean, to be a person who's 25, who has 10 years of education, what are you going to do? The kind of position that you can have in Israel is probably not going to be anything beyond uh, stocking shelves at a supermarket or doing some sort of shift position in a factory. And any job we know is honorable. There were so many people, you know, the, the grandfather of my husband, when he made Aliyah from Morocco, he used to be a store owner in Morocco. And here in Israel, he was sweeping the streets of Jerusalem. And he was very proud because he was sweeping the streets of Jerusalem. But if somebody has the ability to study and to advance themselves, so let's give them that opportunity. It's our duty to give them that opportunity. And so we are opening courses really from being able to complete 12 years of study, which opens the doors to higher education, to various professions and organizations in Israel that require having a high school education. And all the way up to courses even in uh, high tech. Now, don't get too excited. It's not to become a programmer or to launch your own uh, uh, sophisticated app and then sell it for millions. But being a quality assurance uh, professional at a high tech company is a very good uh, position to have. And if you think about the, if you think about this sleep, being a person that up until a few months ago was living in Ethiopia without electricity or running water. And within two to three years, you're working in a high-tech company in Tel Aviv. That is, I think, uh, a very special promised land. <laughs> and, and I will end really by saying that when we think about Aliyah and integration, and we remember the Bible, there's a reason why, is it, why there was a generation of the desert. And when you think about the meaning of the generation of the desert, and you realize that there are those who don't truly make it to the promised land, this is something that we have to, in all honesty, realize that can also happen today. But we, at the same time, we are not absolved from doing everything we can to take them out of the desert. Absolutely. And, you know, I always love that scripture in Jeremiah 32, verse 41. Yeah. And it says here that the Lord says, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. And we like to be remind ourselves that that's the only thing, the only verse where God says through the prophet here that he will do this thing with all his heart and soul. And so we're excited about Aliyah. We're just as excited about integration. And it's been a huge privilege for us to- They're support. one and the same, Nicole. One absolutely. and the same. Absolutely. It's two sides of the same coin. And it's absolutely such a privilege for us to have provided furniture for some of those first homes for given the household items to families who came with a backpack and almost nothing else. Uh, it's been a privilege for us to assure that these young Ethiopians got the education they needed, 
or other people who came needed to kind of become recertified in their professions and so they can meet uh, essential uh, needs in the medical field in here in Israel. They're being cared for. Um, a whole variety, a whole range of integration on top of providing help for those flights or accommodation or rescue for Holocaust survivors coming out of the Ukraine. A lot of different things we've had the privilege to work on together. It's amazing. And it's, it's just a joy. And it's so much, um, I wanna say thank you to all of our donors around the world who have made it possible. And thank you to you because um, we have a really special good friendship and relationship and it's a joy to work with you. Thank you. And can I just ask please that in addition to everything that ICJ is doing and everything that your donors are doing and I trust and I hope and I pray that they will continue to do, if, um, if you could please also encourage everyone to pray for, mm -hmm. to pray for, the, for the people of Russia, mm -hmm. to pray for the Jews of Russia. Mm -hmm. And just as we know that Aliyah from Russia has not stopped for, for a single day since the beginning of the war, it is not stopping now, uh, that it will not stop in the future. That's right. We will certainly be praying for that. And, you know, it is true, it's, it's been out of the headlines in a way. It hasn't been as much in the headlines as it was when the war first started. And so the world kind of moves on and looks at other things, but this is a very, very real and ongoing and uh, uh, surge in Aliyah. On the one hand, it's exciting, but there's also a lot of heartbreak in it. And we will certainly be praying um, and doing our best to help ease the, the, the journey, so. Amen. Amen. Barry, you want to finish us off with a prayer for that? I will do so. And uh, Danielle, thank you for being with us today. To all of our participants, thank you for participating. Share the message. This webinar remains up on Facebook and on YouTube, so it, it becomes archived there. You can share it with your friends. And do join us in praying for what God's doing to bring the Jews back, plant them in the land, help them prosper here. And for those of us on the ground, for the Jewish agency, for Danielle and the multitude of the staff in the countries, um, for Nicole and our aid department working with these different programs. So let's pray now as we close this webinar. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just ask, and Lord, as Christians, we ask you in the name of Jesus, open the doors for those Jews who are wanting to come. Lord, for those who are undecided, move on their hearts. Help them make decisions. Lord, and make provision for their integration, for their becoming a vital part of this amazing life in this nation of Israel. And Father, for those in Russia, going through so much confusion and, and deception right now. For those in Ukraine, so much suffering. Lord, we cry out for your mercy upon them. Have mercy upon them, protect them, and open the doors for them to come home to their homeland, Israel. Amen.